Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan right here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is our normally once-a-month chat with Mark Rosano. He was out of commission last month on business, so we missed him last month, but he's here once again. Before we get to that, let's thank our sponsor, which is Novo. I use them for my businesses, Ray Global Advisors and War Room Media. Love the folks at Novo. You should consider if you're looking to start a business or have a business and you want to transition it to online and have it be free, check out the folks at Novo. We'll link to that in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get to our monthly chat with the one, the only Mark, the Matrix Rosano. Well, Mark, it is good to have you on. I would say our monthly meeting, but someone, I'm not going to say who, didn't show up last month. So it's good to have our normally (laughs) scheduled monthly meeting that hopefully we're back on track now. Yes, yes. We we were back on track. Everything is all set to go. You know, Big Oren needs his his uh, entertainment. And so um, <laughs> the fact that you were here last month, he was probably pretty disappointed. Maybe that's why he was talking to me so much. He he just missed my voice and hearing my comments. So he wanted to just, just get his fill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you want to take any shots at Big Oren, this is a approved <laughs> podcast for that. So just feel free. Okay, Mark. Well... We did miss last month, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get into it. Uh, let's let's just go. How about China? Let's start China. We haven't talked China in a while. There's been a lot going on. Um, where do you want to start out with China? I'll let you pick where you want to start out with China. <laughs> so I, I think some of the interesting spots to to start at is the Himalayas versus the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. So one of the things that that we were uh, we had been selling, saying that as obviously it's the Himalaya, so it's a little it's a little cold, things typically slow down, and you know there's there was a lot of um, uh, just saber rattling. There was a lot of positioning before the winter set in, but now things have really calmed down. And one of our views was that as things on, along the Himalayas started to cool off, you would see it ignite, uh, reignite, and you'd see a big focus into the Taiwan Strait. And so far. We've seen that in in spades. You know, the U.S. has responded in kind, uh, where we've had some of our politicians there. Uh, we we now officially have a trip force there, which we've had for for some time. But now we're recognizing that we do have soldiers and boots on the ground. So there's there's a lot of this pushback and positioning as we go forward. And then you had, uh, and then you had Trump. Uh, Trump. Wow. Yeah, good. You have to move forward. We had Biden and G um, meeting, and and it was contentious where we expected it to be contentious. It was, it was there was an agreement where we expected it to be an agreement. So uh, again, a lot of the issues that were were there were on the geopolitical side, and I don't see that changing. Uh, you know, one of the things that did shock me was the view that there was going to be a political um, embargo on the Olympics. That's something where that, and all that just means is that politicians from the U S will not attend the opening ceremony, the closing ceremony. There won't be any political representation for the U S which I thought was, was, was a bit odd given I, I, I didn't see anything in the meeting that would kind of trigger that this is going to be a stance that we will take. But so far that's only been talked about. You know, some of the uh, bigger things now kind of leading from that geopolitical into the economic, you know, they've continued to to struggle and they've continued to struggle on a lot of different levels. Uh, One. And when you think about how GDP is broken down, you know, with the consumer, which is that the C, I, which is the investment, G, which is government, and then X minus Y, which is their exports. So when you look at when you look at what, uh, you know, exports minus imports. So when you look at the breakdowns right now, 
you have to look at what is happening on the investment side and the consumer side. And right now, the investment side has really slowed down. We've seen industrial production get hit, industrial uh, investments come under pressure, and the consumer just hasn't been there. And, and that is something that can be said pre-COVID, where their, their consumption was slowing. And a lot of these reasons that I think when people talk about the real estate side and the issues with Evergrande and Kaisa, you know, there's things called the um, the wealth management products, and WMPs are essentially WMDs in terms of uh, uh, just these these weapons that have been created. And and again, all they are is uh, is is wealth products where. Say, for an example, you're, you're a, a consumer, you uh, bought in this building, you love this building, you think it's going to be great, and the company essentially says, hey, we need to finish this, would you want to own a piece of it? And then they sell out a piece of it, they bring it, <clears throat> they bring in capital, they can finish the building, and then with the rent that's collected, that is then paid back in terms of uh, these products. So you've seen that happen extensively. And, and if you think and just think about the, the politics behind it, the CCP and a lot of their officials have always invested in real estate. So if you're a consumer, why would you not want to invest in real estate as well? Because you see your leaders doing the same thing. So there, there was a huge adoption of these WMPs or these wealth management products that have... Uh, integrally linked the issues in the um, in the real estate side with the consumer, with the consumption, because this is money that went from their savings account into an investment vehicle that is now gone. Now the government is still trying to figure out how do they structure this, how do they how do they make people whole? But if you're unsure about what's going to happen, are you really going to spend? And that's where they've been in this cycle, and this has been something that they've tried to kickstart. For the last couple of years, with the um, the dual circulation strategy, uh, now with the um, with the uh, the the view that everybody uh, gets gets uh, gets wealthy because they're trying to again redistribute, try to kick up consumption, which is becoming an issue now on the government side. That G, you're seeing a big breakdown in terms of local government spending because they don't have the capital, they don't have the uh, the ability to continue to to essentially just drive things forward. And, and that's why the PBOC has kept open a lot of these channels to deliver cash. And the reason why is they made a lot of money from uh, uh, from re uh, real estate sales. They made a lot of money from land sales. And you're just not getting that in the to the same degree. But you're also, you also have tax cuts. You've had tax uh, leniency. You've had, um, you've had VAT taxes that have been forgiven, which... That was supposed to expire, and that just got extended again. So now you're, you're also not only the, the government is is limited in what they can do to generate cash, but their normal revenue stream through taxes is getting cut again uh, further, and they weren't expecting some of this. So that's why there's there's these channels to try to keep this open because the PBOC has had to inject capital, has has had to inject liquidity and cash which is where you're seeing a lot of these pressure points. Then you look at exports. Exports have remained fairly strong. Uh, if you just look at imports as a leading indicator for exports, imports have, have been missing estimates. They've been coming down, speaking to the continued weakness of the consumer, but what is China? But they import raw materials, semi-finished products, and then they export ex, uh, finished products and semi-finished products. So if you're importing raw materials and then exporting uh, some semi-finished or fully finished, 
you can kind of get an idea of where some of these breakdowns are going to be. And we just continue to see these pressure points uh, across the different drivers of the economy, which I think is something that is going to be a, uh, a big, I don't want to say shock because I, we've been talking about it forever, but it's going to be something that'll, that'll, I think, pull down a lot of their economic growth. So you, you started with the Olympics. And so let, let's go back there because part of what China wants to do with the Olympics is make this big grand show, this big festival, this big party is right word, but it's like a dinner, a gala. Um, and that's going to be interesting because you have the problems with the Chinese economy and then you have the Olympics, which brings in a lot of attention. And so do you expect a lot of propaganda, um, more fudging the numbers than normal <laughs> over the next few months? Because, you know, when people come in the country, they can leave and say whatever they want to. Right. So, so it, yeah. it feels like if you're China and you want to put out the, the strong forward looking face, then you really have to double down these next few months. And that's what we've started to see. You know, you've seen some liquidity get injected. Now, typically the PBOC will inject liquidity into month end and then they'll start to pull it back. So you always want to look at what the first 10 days of the new month show. And so far they, they've they've been very hesitant to to inject capital. They want they've kept their credit impulses in check. And that's not something I see adjusting, but it doesn't mean that they can't spend money in very specific locations. And, and I think you're starting to see that where they, they had a huge run in steel production and in industrial production in September. They then, obviously we all know about the electricity problems. They then had a lot of that shut down. And then when you start looking into January and February, they're gonna wanna do something very similar because they're gonna wanna have clean atmosphere. They wanna have you know not as much pollution. So I think you're gonna see some forced closures on some of those um, assets within the region. And then you'll start to see them make sure that things look a certain way. You know, for those that remember the summer Olympics, there were, there were drapes over uh, buildings that weren't finished that made it look like there was a finished facade, you know, and you're continuously seeing that. And, and when you look at just on the real estate side, a lot of these projects, most of these projects are semi-finished. And when you look at the backdrop of, projects that are finished and projects that are semi-finished or just started. I mean, the, the gap is widening. So it, but again, that, that it's a big country. So to say that and where the Olympics are going to be, you can make sure that that looks really good, that everything looks really uh, in the way it's supposed to, if you will. And then you can make sure people see and, and are directed in the way you want them to be directed. And I think you're going to continue to see that play out to make sure that things don't look uh, th to make sure everything looks a very certain way. Oh yeah, it's a it, it's a very big country. Uh, my favorite North Korea story, um, and I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast or not, but they they brought the UN in back in the '90s, I think it was, to do some kind of food for kids or one of those programs, you know. Mm -hmm. And they had to go visit three sites, and uh, they go to the first site, they look at it. They go to the second site, they look at it. They go to the third site, and the UN inspector, or whoever it was, like, hey, we're back at the first site. And the North Koreans go, no, this is the third side. And they're like, no, 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 this is the first side. Like, no, this is the third side. <laughs> it, it's, it, you know, it, it's, they, they, there's a certain amount of pop and uh, pomp and circumstance that they're going to continue to roll out. And they want to show a certain side of the country and not really what, even know what we see. And, and you, you bring up a great point on, on adjusting numbers. And, and one of the things like the China beige book does a really good job because they'll, they'll snapshot. 
they'll, they'll take snapshots of what those numbers were. And when you look at how, <laughs> how 2019 numbers have just all miraculously fallen to mm -hmm. make the year over year comparisons better when we were in 2020 and you're seeing it again in 2021, it, it, it then becomes you know, laughable overall, because if you're taking down a lot of these numbers from previous years, well, inherently, you know, then you have to take down GDP numbers. So then GDP wasn't where it was supposed to be. But one of the things that, that we always talk about, when you look at the debt, uh, debt to GDP leverage ratios, you know, they're, they're very poor investors, because if you think about it, they're for almost every $3 of borrowing, they're only making a dollar. And when you start thinking about that in grand in the grand scheme of things of the law of diminishing returns, you that's where the PBOC is, where they're looking at this because everyone keeps saying, oh, they're going to stimulate, they're going to do what they need to do, they're going to. Well, they can't because they're at a point now where every new incremental dollar doesn't deliver what it's supposed to. It actually has a, what uh, going back to the academic side, a negative util where it, there's just a negative, uh, you know, the negative piece to it, where it's not actually generating growth. Now there are ways that they can adjust that. And, and I think one of them is the consumer, which is why I, I talk so much about those WMPs, because if you can help, uh, you know, the consumer get comfortable or make the consumer whole, that would enable a certain amount of spending that would get people a bit more comfortable with their situation. So I, I think those are some of the key things to watch when we think about a recovery in China and stimulus in China. It's going to be on the on that WMP consumer side. And that's one of the things about adjusting the numbers that frustrates me with some of the comment, China commentators. Uh, I was on a call the other day and they're like, well, we know what China's going to do because they've said it, and therefore they're going to do it for the next fifty years. And it was some climate change policy. I'm like, like we we the, the whole thing is they literally adjust their numbers in line to make it fit the narrative all the time. And so I don't. This kind of ties into the, the notion of the long term thinking, the long term planning. A, there's all kinds of problems with being being able to pull it off. But B, is that even practically what's going on there? Uh, there is obviously some long-term planning, planning and thinking, but if you're having to constantly readjust your numbers. So, you know, if we said, Hey Mark, uh, we want to roll out a podcast and we want to record 500 episodes over the next seven years. And we're, we want to have, you know, three guests a month, whatever it is, right. We would say this, this is the long-term plan. This is how we're going to execute it. And we'd measure against our plan. Like we said, okay, this is the plan. This is what we thought we were going to do. This is where we're at. Right. Well, if you're having to readjust your numbers, because you didn't meet your plan, then perhaps your plan wasn't a well thought out, but B the plan really isn't there. Right. Right. Maybe the plan is to adjust the numbers. Like maybe that's the plan. <laughs> you know? well, it, it, it's so funny when you, when you look at, um, you know, some, some have said that the only way to address climate change is to have central planning and to, and it's, it's really not because when you miss, when you miss uh, allocate funds, when you don't understand the demand cycles, of your industrial complexes, it's really hard to say that, oh, well, this is fine. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to take away coal. What am I replacing it with? Like, I, I get it. You want to take away my coal. That's fine. Like, I get that. Where's my replacement? And if you right. take away coal too fast, then you're going to leave me in, in a lurch because now what? Now what am I going to use for power? Now what am I going to use as my input? And we've seen that time and time again, where you have these these ex extenuating circumstances that then create these huge shortfalls, 
And we've seen it, uh, you know, the, there was an economic side where you had floods, you had to shut down mines, there was safety. And then you had the political where Australia was, was no longer a friend, it was a foe, and you were going to stop importing coal from there. So you can't do both. Because, you know, one of them is, you know, an act of God, you had, you had, you had floods, you had issues in, on that side, but then one's geopolitical. So you have to balance the two, or you have to come up with a replacement. And, and there's, there's been a, a failure, uh, it, you know, very large. So in terms of connecting LNG from the coast to the, to the inner side of China, where, it's not very easy to store uh, natural uh, LNG and it's, and it's expensive to store natural gas unless you have a lot of salt caverns. So those are the, some of those limitations make it where you have to, you really need at time deliveries. You need those pipelines to be well um, connected and, and streamlined. And they haven't really been able to close that gap when you look at what China's trying to do. And it comes down again to money because there's still a, a big shortfall on the amount of infrastructure that has been spent over the last 10 years and what you've actually gotten for your money. And that's where, again, you look at these, this capital planning, these great plans, like you were talking about where we're going to do 500 shows and we're going to spend X. Well, if we spend X, but only make Y, well, we, we, we lost money. So right. we, it's going to be tough to continue down that, that, that stretch, which is what they've continued to do where they keep trying to drum up in, uh, infrastructure and the importance of infrastructure, but these assets aren't generating, they're not even covering principal, let alone interest. And then you start, you, then you take that and go abroad because, you know, some of the, the biggest commentaries are, well, there's onshore debt and offshore debt and onshore debt is fine. It's like, okay, well, let's look at, let's look at that mixture of onshore debt. So they've taken the, there's a lot of this debt and they've, uh, invested in the BRI or the Belt and Road Initiative, and now you you saw they just took another um, another international airport in Uganda, and and you're you're starting to see another pressure point where, okay, so they didn't make their debt payment, so you took the delivery of the facility, but so far we've seen that even the facilities that were meant to be the backstop, they're not generating the revenue revenue that either side expected. They're not generating what, what is needed. So even though China is now collecting these assets, it's still not making anyone whole. And you could say that, look, they don't care. They want the asset. They want the, the leverage. The, the So there's a lot of these different pieces. And you know we can spend you know, several podcasts p- pissing, uh, picking apart which one is which? Like, is is it more of a geopolitical push? Is it more of an economic push that was just poorly managed and poorly uh, executed on the revenue side, or both? And and there's a lot of things to uh, to consider behind that. Well, yeah, and and as they expand outside their borders, controlling the narrative becomes harder, right? And yeah. so inside the borders, you know, this we're we're doing this. Last year during the COVID lockdowns, um, I remember they announced that they're doing. Uh, going to hire a bunch more teachers and, and all kinds of other government jobs because obviously people were at home not making money. And so, you know, and they weren't sure. So they announced that, that they're going to hire people. Well, that works. That might play well to the to the local audience. But in Uganda or somewhere else, um, that's not going to always be seen uh, as popular. So you have all the economic constraints, but then you have just the, the real world law of unintended consequences where things don't work out just like you thought they would. And so you talk about central planning, it works well in like a game like The Sims or mm-hmm. theoretically speaking. But when you get out there and you go, hey, 
we're going to do this. I don't know about you, Mark. I've done things that I thought were genius, and no one liked it. <laughs> well, I've and, jokes that didn't land before a time or two. Well, so. and, and it's funny because when you think about that planning, whenever you plan for something, you have to hold something constant. And when you – we all know economics, finance, the world in general is – there's nothing that's a constant. A, there's there's always a push me pull me impact. So if you push on a string, mm -hmm. there's going to be a million strings that are going to be slack, you know, pushed pulled on, given slack that you didn't intend, yeah. that you didn't even expect. Where you're like, oh my god, that that is connected to that. I would have, you know. And then you, and then when you look at policy, look at the U.S. policy, look at all of these, how big these bills get because you have to account or they try to account for so many things. And even though they think they've covered everything, then they miss something so simple like inflation or adjusting for inflation or, you know, all of these, something right. that you're like, wait, you didn't do what? Right. <laughs> you know, inflation is a thing, right? Like it goes up every year. So these are some of those little where it's so hard to try to, to manage and enforce something like, you know, when you look at coal in the U.S., right? Coal in the U.S. was already going down because natural gas was cheaper. If you just let the market be the market, natural gas would have naturally replaced coal just based on cost incentives. There's no reason to have a coal facility that is going gonna, is gonna to be at, at a certain price versus others. But then when you force it to happen, you don't allow the nat natural gas to, nat to essentially naturally come in, you know, replace these assets and trying to protect towns. When you force things to close you then destroy not only just the facility, but the ancillaries. What about the restaurants, the bars, the homes, the villages, the, the towns that were around this facility that if you had given it time and hint, hint, the ability to build pipelines, maybe that facility would have still been there. It just would have been converted from coal to natural gas. Like, And then you wouldn't have lost the town. You wouldn't have lost these, these businesses. And these are the knock-on effects that we don't appreciate. And then when you look at China, and, and again, like anything I've ever said, you can say this was true in 2011. And that is 100% accurate. These All of these comments were absolutely viable in 2011. But as I was saying back then, it, when, does the, when does this break? Is it 101 ghost cities? Is it, is it 1,001? Is it 10,001? And one of the things here is my view is we've hit that point. We've hit the wall where this is it. Like there's nothing else that can happen without a much bigger slowdown. And you're seeing that in the US because I mean, the market's now down 56 handles. The We, we, we had our, our bloody Friday and we're addicted to stimulus. We're addicted. So what happens when we really start to see an aggressive easy uh, uh, tapering and what does that do to yields? Because the, the government has been one of the largest buyers. Uh, they, uh, the Fed has been one of the largest buyers of government debt over the last 12 months. Or how much is that going to impact rates? And then if we see an impact in our 10-year, then that's going to be a huge impact for emerging markets because emerging markets price themselves off of our 10-year. So you start to see these, these knock-on effects that, again, we I, I don't think are appreciated or or cared about because they're like, well, this is just the U S we don't really care what happens abroad. Yeah. Well, the, th the, the difference and, and I've talked about this some on this show. Um, it, it's one of those things we, th we throw around a lot, but, and, and I've, I've made this analogy numerous times and I just don't think people 
really understand the difference. I just read a book, um, a short book on Audible I was listening to about the history of Western Africa. Okay. And so it's going through all the stuff that happened, you know, way back when from when it was first um, um, found by the Europeans uh, all the way to not modern day, but, you know, relatively modern day. And you just think about some of the stuff that happened and it was done and, and how the world was so isolated, right? So the slave trade and all, all that happened with that, so isolated. So there's people who heard about it in Europe, but probably really had no understanding of what was actually going on. Today, that's on YouTube, it's on WhatsApp, it's on Twitter. Um, and so part of what we've seen historically is the narrative has been, been it has been able to be controlled so much top down that that no longer happens. And so your ability, when you talk about the inflation in the U.S. right now, okay, well, we've had that historically. That's not, that's not new. And we've had very much a top-down messaging from the government or from the big news. Well, now you can get on Twitter and you can see this guy over here, you know, Mark Rossano, the Matrix, out here hammering on it. You're like, wait, I've never heard that before. It's not that Rossano invented some new economic scheme. It's just that, you know, 10 years ago, Twitter wasn't as popular or YouTube wasn't around as much. And so... Mm -hmm. People are getting these ideas, and so that's what I think. We talk about the the getting to the edge, to the to the, the edge of the cliff. Part of that is people, the, the the masses now have a lot easier way to think good or bad about all kinds of things, and I think that this makes it harder to control all sorts of narratives. So you talk about the U.S. economy, you talk about inflation. Uh, that's where I want to go next. Is where are we at with the dollar? with crypto? Because this seems to be a runaway narrative that I don't think. I don't think if I don't think this is a Biden issue. I think if Trump were in, he'd have very hard messaging on this too, because a lot of the problems we're seeing came from his administration and obviously prior administration. So this isn't something that just Biden did on his own. Um, but it's really hard for the consumers to go, well, okay, it's not that bad because they are actually feeling it, right? Right. And we we looked at historic on uh, historic salary numbers, wage numbers. It's not like the middle class is getting rich. They've been struggling for a long period of time, and now you can go read people with different points of view than you get on CNN or Fox and go, oh, okay, that actually makes sense. That's what's happening. Right. And then once you realize that, you realize you've been lied to for a very, very long time. <laughs> and you get very angry. So, And that's, the, you, you talk about the um, the availability of, of data. And and the unfortunate thing, which which I try to avoid on, on, on my shows, is confirmation bias. Because for anybody who, who does statistics, you know, I can come to any number you want. And you can start with your end result and work backwards, or you can just, or you know the inputs and you can make that number look however you want it to look. So it's always important to, to, to use multiple metrics because sometimes one metric will show one thing and then you want to see what some of the others are. You know, the, the inflation side is, I think, the biggest uh, misnomer out there. And it's really because inflation has been undercounted for so long and it's been it's been hidden from view, even though the consumer saw it. Yeah, you know, hold, it, hold it on, was, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yes, I want you to unpack this because I don't think a lot of people, when you say that, they go, okay, but maybe unpack what the government has done to hide that historically, how they've adjusted the baskets and stuff, sure. um, and they've moved the needle. We talk about the China. We make fun of China for changing the, the metrics. Our own government has done it to us for some time too. So maybe before you go further, that's a great point that a lot of people might not be aware of. Yeah. So back in the early 80s, Volcker actually adjusted the way we viewed inflation. So there you can do you. I mean, they're still available. You can you can do a calculation both ways, but it adjusted how some of these metrics were weighted. 
what what percentages were accounted for. And now one of the things that I laugh about at this point, because essentially my mortgage and my healthcare are the same are the same price and my mortgage is slightly more expensive. But when you start looking at healthcare and you look at how that is weighted, you're, you're not counting it the way it should be because you're seeing a huge undervalue of what people are spending on healthcare. And then if you look at the numbers, like if you just look at the historical numbers, you know, you're, you're seeing healthcare go up 150% over the last 20, uh, you know, 20, uh, 15, 20 years. And that has been completely undercounted all the way through. And, and when, you know, I, I pay for my own insurance, but even if you're, you're in a, um, in a corporation and you pay monthly a percentage of whatever it is, it's really easy to say, oh, it's just, it's just $5 a month. That that's fine. But when you start seeing that add up over time and uh, it, 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 again, it becomes a much bigger issue. And if your wage isn't going up in lockstep, then you're seeing your discretionary income or what you should have as excess going down. And it's going into something that is, you know, it necessary. Let's, let's be fair. Who, who can't have uh, health insurance at this point in time? So when you look at some of these different weightings in these baskets, then there's also something called the replacements. Like where if, if I want a, uh, a Coke, but Coke is, is up 10 cents, but Pepsi is the same price. Well, I can substitute. So if I can substitute, then they don't really view that as normal inflation because you have an, another option. So that's why when you start looking at inflation, and this is where you start looking at sticky inflation and flexible inflation, you want to look at the, uh, not the name brands, but the store brands, because the store brands are going to have much thinner margins where, you know, it was like, so say for an example, Tylenol, you can have Tylenol, which is the name brand or the CVS brand. And then, you know, it always says like, you know, check the ingredients and you look and you're like, all right, well, they're the same thing. So the CVS brand is $5 cheaper. I'm going to get that. So when you, the CVS brand or, you know, Walgreens pick your, pick your store, that is, that is going to go up and that's going to move and be more flexible in terms of how that drives up where Tylenol, because it's already at such a premium, they don't have to raise uh, rates or you know price the same way. They'll just give up some margin, where the CVS brand can't because they're already operating at a much thinner margin. So you want to look at those name brands. How are they adjusting? And and then another nice little way to to hide this is how many times do you go in and you don't have a coupon? Well, what is the coupon worth? You know, if you look back, you know, two years ago, it was a thirty five percent off, forty percent off. Now it's 25% off or 20% off. You're starting to see the deals not be as good. You still feel like I'm getting a deal because I have a coupon. I'm getting all this great stuff, but you're, it's still netting out where you're paying more right. and then take it to the next level. What about shrinkage? And, and, and I don't mean in the Seinfeld way, in terms of shrinkflation. So now that CVS bottle, for an example, was 150 pills. So you got 150 pills for, you know, $5. Now you're going to get 125 pills for $5. So it's still, the packaging looks the same. Everything looks the same, but the weight on it is now less. So you're still paying the same price for less product. And that's called shrinkflation where you're trying to hide the price increase by giving people less and charging them the same. And that's where like Ben and Jerry's, 
makes the claim of uh, like still a pint and but yet look at the prices and and prices are up almost two two fifty from uh, five years ago. But in your head, you're like, well, it's two fifty, but right. it adds up. You've seen it with eggs, with beef, with with other things, and and again, that that may not be an issue for someone in the top twenty percent of the U.S., but someone in the bottom forty percent, that is a real number, and that is a number that adds up. Well, it's going to be an issue for anyone. Um this would be true of anyone who is living right there on the edge of their means, right? So yeah. you can be in the top 20%, but if you're living paycheck to paycheck still, um, obviously you could potentially downgrade and stuff, but in that moment, it is going to, it's going to get you tough. Um, but to your point, and this is where I just want to hone in here. It's, yeah. it's not that the, the Tylenol versus the CVS brand is the backbreaker, right? You're paying $10 for Tylenol, $5 for CVS. What happens is you're paying, uh, you know, maybe ten dollars for Tylenol, but it's seven fifty for CVS. And you're like, well, well okay, what's well, that thing? Five dollars by going down from Tylenol to CVS, I can only save you know two fifty. And then you go and you go get the eggs. And in, in this compact, because all the different companies are trying to figure out, do they shrink inflation? Do they raise the prices? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is you're getting hit from multiple angles that you can't escape: your health insurance, all this stuff, right. um, and inflation. And this is one of the narratives I think has to be brought forth and pounded home: is inflation. Um, is essentially a tax on the lower class. The more we inta- the more things are inflated, especially due to irresponsible printing by the government, you're just taxing the, the middle and lower classes because they can't afford it. Right. And when I, I've actually I had this conversation with my father because I mean, how many people that are currently operating right now remember inflation? Because when when was the last time we had real inflation? So I, I was asking him, I was like, you know, when was the last time you were actually concerned about inflation? And he, and he thinks about it. And he's like, you know what? I, I would say 1982. 1982 was the last time I was really concerned about inflation. And, and I thought that was interesting. I'm like, okay, 1982. Then you look at what we've done since the late 70s. We've exported our, uh, we've exported labor. We've exported our supply chain. You know, we've essentially exported inflation. So, but you have to think about that a little differently. What, what do we get in savings? So when I was going through, because I'm like, all right, well, he wasn't worried about it, but let me see what was he making in savings, in money markets, in uh, certificates of deposit or CDs, and you were making almost thirteen percent. So inflation was seventeen percent, but your money sitting in the bank was making thirteen percent. So net net, you were missing about four percent. And again, these are round numbers. There, you know, there's these are round figures. But now take today. So right now we're at about 6.8% inflation. And then if you use the old Volcker calculation, we're at 14%. But let's just use the numbers that we have today, which is 6.2, 6.8%. Let's meet in the middle and call it eight. <laughs> sure, let's call it eight. 14, but we'll, we'll, we'll be generous and call it eight. So, but now you have, you, you look at what you're earning in the bank and it's five basis points. So you're actually spending, you're losing money just being, just saving. Which is why you have that Tina, you know, which is just that no other asset. Like, you know, it's just, I have to own equities because I, I can't own anything else. So I'm just going to own equities. And that's where, you know, we, we've, I think the figure is now we've, uh, the amount of money that's come into the market this year is the equivalent of the last 10 years combined. And it's just people are sitting there and they're like, I'm not making anything in savings and I, I'm missing out. So I need to get and try to recoup some of this lost uh, capacity and there, and you're earning nothing in savings. And, and at the very beginning of all of this, 
um, Powell had a quote essentially saying, the, the question was, what happens if people don't own assets and they rely on their savings? And he essentially said, you're going to get screwed. And when you think about who doesn't own assets, who doesn't own their homes, who doesn't own, you know, a second home, who doesn't own a, a car or, you know, this, these are the, the, the poor. And, and, and unfortunately they're not just poor. This is now bleeding well into the middle class that don't own anything. So you're, you're telling me outright, my savings are going to go down in value and I'm going to have no way to make it up because I don't own an asset. And now if I want to buy an asset, it's going to go up exponentially so what do I do? I take whatever I have in savings and I try to dump it into the market. And that's where you've seen this, this massive, um, this surge, if you will, higher. And But what have we seen before? We've seen surges c come and fade. And then you have the market have this big correction, especially when you lose momentum, you lose, you have tapering, you have rates rising around the world. All of a sudden, why am I in equities? And where did you buy? You know, are you gonna are you gonna lose? How much are you gonna lose? And and I think that the the savings conundrum and this also leads into pension plans mm -hmm. because pension funds guaranteed when you got into your pension fund they would provide four percent growth or five percent growth. Now, how do you get five percent growth? You you invest in, in a riskier and riskier assets because I can't go buy T bills. I can't go buy uh, you know treasury bonds because it doesn't yield anything. So I have to go buy equities. I have to go into emerging markets. I have to go into private equity. I have to go into things that are going to provide the yield in order to, to get this guaranteed money. But that also leads to taking riskier and riskier behavior, which can then obviously lead to, uh, to failure and then a complete loss in investment. Right. And so let's go back to... You know, the law of unintended consequences, central planning, and kind of, again, poke the U.S. side for a second here. Not only do you have people whose wages are being you know, stifled, if you will, um, you have the Fed pumping huge dollars into the stock market, which turns it green when it should be really red, especially last year. Mm -hmm. So you have people who realize, I can't make money. I'm staying at home. Um, oh, I need to go invest. Well, then right. they have to de determine, you talk about going to the stock market. There's two ways. Are you going to buy a gro growth stock? Or are you going to buy a dividend stock, right? Okay. Well, the problem with the growth or value stock, whatever you call it, is that's really just a trade, if we're being honest here. That's a trading stock. You're buying that at this value, and, and for if you're you know lower to middle, middle class, you're hoping to sell it at a higher value because you can't do anything with it while it's sitting in your Robinhood account. Okay. Right. The dividend stock, the problem there is the amount of money that you have to have in dividends to actually make a paycheck for you is more than you could put in. Right. So people tend to put it in like a Tesla or something like that, where they're hoping to get a, a bunch of value. Well, if you don't time that trade just right, mm -hmm. money's not lost, but it's just tied up for a lot longer. And then you've created this whole other problem, you talk about momentum, uh, market sentiment, all this stuff. And so it's really one of these things to where um, you're like, oh, hey, we're going to try to fix the market, if you will. Well, you've made it worse because you've sent false signals. Now the people who are trying to recoup a few bucks, they can't because they've invested in these things. Um, and you can't keep the price high enough. And so it, it, it's really, I mean, 
you just don't tax. It's just like it's just like yeah. you didn't tax it directly, but you well, always taxed them again. And, and it's funny because you know in the investing world that that's that the running joke is you just turned a trade into an investment because you're refusing to sell <laughs> until you get back to break even, and and that's when you have to have the um, the confidence to sell it at a loss with the idea that you know the opportunity cost of sitting in it isn't worth it. But when you when you start looking at these these the uh, you know a better way or a, another way to say it is is price discovery. Mm. You know they've destroyed price discovery yes. because you you're you're artificially keeping things so high and it's well what what is price discovery like I, I'll buy Delta like I had no problem buying Delta I had bids in the in the system from nine dollars to six dollars because i'm like you know what if delta breaks 10 bucks i'm a buyer because mm -hmm. i th i like the company i think they're they're well positioned they're well capitalized i think they, they they have the right situation i will happily come in and purchase delta and what happened well the government stepped in so delta never went below 18 dollars. so now it, it's there's a lot of risk there's a lot of closures there's a lot of problems so i'm not going to sit there and say well I, I'm I'm not buying. I'm not going to chase it, and you. So you missed a certain amount of price discovery, which would have which would have done well. And you know, being selfish here, would have done well for me. Yeah, because I would have made money on right. this. No, 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 that, that, no, no. That's important. You should have made money on that, but you didn't. Right. And and, and it's it's these things compounded everywhere you go in your life. That's that's a cumulative effect, right? Is that everywhere you turn. You're getting hosed. Right. And and that's where you, you look at, you know, stepping in. So there's one side of the argument and just using and picking on airlines for a moment. There's one side where you can say, well, they, they had no choice because the government made them uh, stop, you know, flights and, uh, you know, internationally, domestically. And then you could say, well, I think I, there's a lot of people that would have been happy to give them debt or, or invest in their stock as long as the price was right for the, for the risk. So, and, and you could now take this from another angle, because what have we seen with airlines going back to the seventies? We've seen how many bankruptcies, you know, well, for those that remember nine 11, there was a huge shock to the system where flights were canceled. Things didn't move around. So this is not unknown with it's, it's unique territory, but it's not an unknown amount of territory. And then when you look at how they manage their balance sheets, which was, well, I'm going to, I'm going to leverage my balance sheet to buy back stock. Well, I'm going to issue debt because it's free to buy back stock. So, well, you, you made a bet. Your bet was I'm going to issue debt to buy back stock and I'm going to create a financial, you know, transaction that works in the very short term. Well, now your, your revenue that you were expecting to be there is gone you made a leverage bet and lost. So that means that you need to issue stock at a lower price because you were wrong. And I think there would have been people out there that would have happily purchased said stock, especially given some of the different assets. Or there's a thing called bankruptcy. You can go in and we can go back through the 70s and there's been a lot of airlines that have been in bankruptcy before and you can come out on the other side. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and we have made it, uh, you know, an embarrassment or we we've now tried to hide these different pieces and, and the underlying thing, which is why I talk about the pension funds is because this is a backhanded way to protect 
the largest holders, which are pension funds. You saw that with Ford, GM, you know, especially GM when you look at the UAW and what happened with, uh, with President Obama post-TARP. Uh, and there, there's a lot of different pieces that come from that that need to be, uh, I think, appreciated of, well, who is the benefit? Who's benefiting from this? And when you look at those top shareholders, a lot of them are ETFs and pension funds that you're trying to make whole. But for me, it's skip the middleman. <laughs> Just make the pension fund whole if that's what your what your concern is. Don't mm -hmm. try to bail out these companies and try to you know try to get some sort of normalcy back in the market. Yeah, and so if you go to like um, we'll say we'll, we'll keep it with Bitcoin. Uh, you go to Bitcoin. You talk about price discovery, the market, price volatility. Could you imagine if Bitcoin was traded on the New York Stock Exchange? <laughs> like it would be shut down. <laughs> you could never trade it. It'd be shut down. Um, and it, it, that's one of the things that that I've appreciated about following the Bitcoin stuff is that it, it is super risky, super volatile. So you have that. But on the flip side, you do see what it's like when something is about as free market trading as you can get. I don't know. I mean, there are, you know, you have China and some other countries they are kind of influencing it on some level, but by and large, it's people deciding they want it, deciding to sell it, whatever they're going to do with it. Um, and you see what it looks like in that. Now I'm not saying Delta would be traded as widely as wildly as Bitcoin. Um, but you do, you do see kind of how the brakes are put on the New York stock exchange, uh, maybe a little bit more than the average person might realize. Well, there's there's a lot of volatility uh, triggers where you don't want things to move too wildly. And you, and the unfortunate thing is when you look at things that don't trade with a human involved and things that trade um, on just uh, uh, you know electronic exchanges, mm -hmm. you can get a lot of these moves. And when you look at the algorithms that have gotten involved in the market, you can see a lot of different swings, especially when you start layering in options. Because not only you know, when you're talking about the retail investor, not only were they looking to buy stocks, but they were looking to buy options. Mm. And what are options but a leveraged uh, vehicle? And But there's a lot of ways that options are priced, which is the four different Greeks and the algos that manage those Greeks because there's somebody, if you bought an option, there's somebody that sold it to you. And they're going to manage that position based on you know their gamma level, what is their delta, you know what is volatility doing. And a lot of times that will create synthetic stock to buy. And that's where when you look at Tesla, like you bring up Tesla, there's there's been created oh, you know, millions of shares that need to be purchased to cover artificially some of these, uh, these positions. And when you look at something like you're talking about Bitcoin, the benefit on, on a Bitcoin side is it's capped. You know, there's only so many Bitcoins that are available but just like anything else, when you have a limited amount of, of or one-way purchases, you get what's called air pockets. Where and, and Bitcoin is has been subject to a lot of them where all of a sudden somebody decides they want to get out and they, they hit the market and there's nobody on the way down until you get to this big trigger point, which could be 8 10% lower. You know, the idea is to tr try to create something a bit more stable where if something goes down 3% in a straight line, well, let's pause it, let buyers and sellers come together, figure out what the right price is, reopen it, and try to create a bit more stability. But with, with algos and ETFs, it's, it's, very, it's getting harder and harder to do on a, uh, on a daily basis. Yes, but I would argue, though, that watching the Bitcoin uh, go up and down is good 
it's, it's good therapy. <laughs> not <laughs> not if you have a lot of it, obviously, at like 75,000 or I think I said 5,000, but you know, 60,000, whatever. Yeah. It goes out of 40. You know, it's that good therapy for you then. But part of the, the problem with the retail investors that the retail investors have with the stock market is, is that it is so controlled that it does, it does induce panic selling mm-hmm. because you, you, it, it, it's so much, it's meant to move slower. Well, if you're in Bitcoin, you realize, and you understand what's going on, you realize you're on a roller coaster, yeah. right? I'm not yes. saying that you should be in Bitcoin or not. I'm just saying that you realize that you are on a roller coaster and it makes you a little bit more resolved mm-hmm. um, on, on your investments. Whereas if you're a, you know, you're buying a, you know, a Tesla or whatever, and you know that it's, you know, it's crashes in the stock, there's a pause button press. You're like, oh my gosh, maybe I should sell this. What's going on here? And it kind of changes the way you think about it. So I think the psychology of that, um, I'm not entirely sure is good. I understand the the thought process of why they're trying, what they're trying to prevent, but also I think they might actually do more harm than good in the long run. Yeah, it, it goes, it goes back and forth in, in terms of what has the most value, what, what tr- try to you know, create some sort of stability. Like when you look at Bitcoin, you know, like you said, you know what you're in for because you know, it's going to swing. You know, there's going to be days that for no reason you're down 10%. Then within an hour, you're up 12%. You're like, okay, what just happened right there? And you get these like mini flash crashes. But ideally that's, that's, you know, where some people are are willing to step in. They're willing to come through. The question will always come down to, you know, what makes the most sense in terms of trying to get some stability in pricing. And there's also a certain amount of panic where if something goes down too fast, you might say, okay, this is it. I need to get out because there's a a liquidity issue. And that's where whenever you get into an investment, you have to, uh, or a trade, you have to be confident in what is your target? Like, at what price do I get it? What price do I get out? both up and down and what is the time frame like is there a time frame that i'm looking at because you you know one of the things that i always say is you're not managing money you're managing risk and what is the risk that you're trying to manage because there is always that fear of if you know like if you someone screams fire in a crowded movie theater i can't be the last one out and you need to try to time that trade like you said you know if i got if i buy if i buy tesla at 300 I want to make sure I buy it at 400 because, you know, even I know people that are buying these things and like, it's not worth this, mm-hmm. but, and they'll be quick to sell it. But I was like, I think it's going to go here. That's where I'm going to sell it. And then you have this, these moves because people are, are concerned. And that's where you start seeing terms like diamond hands and paper hands and all these other fun uh, Reddit terms that have been thrown around. Okay. So we'll leave you, I guess, with this one right here. Um, the dollar. Um, I am, I'm a believer that a lot of the reason that these things we talk about with the Fed or the China or China and what they're doing is because the, the, the top governments kind of all wink and nod that, Hey, we should be over. We should really be wigging out about this stuff, but we're not. And so they kind of allow each other to kind of work through the currency. Um, obviously the U S being the reserve currency has a lot of sway. Um, but I'm not sure what the path is to get a strong, dollar that people generally will believe in the u.s i'm not saying that the that the u.s as a whole um is going to abandon the dollar i don't think we're there but i do think that there is enough of the population now that's really questioning the value of the dollar looking to move to crypto um that we're getting closer to that battle that has to happen right because the u.s is going to want to protect its reserve currency standpoint uh the crypto folks are going to want to move to crypto um 
how how close do you think we are before we really see that tension between crypto and the dollar in the U.S. at least? I, I think one of the, I did a show called the USD USD Dynamics, and I, and I did it in 2020 because I think the dollar survives this round. I don't I don't think that we're we're at a point where the dollar will get replaced. And there was a lot of questions thrown around last year because we saw emerging markets with the lowest dollar reserves in 20, 30 years, you know, depending on the country. And, and it's because they were using those dollars to try to stimulate their, their economy. They were trying to, you know, buy in the market and because their normal trade flow wasn't there. Right now, you have a, a natural buyer of dollars because all of these, uh, especially the emerging markets, are raising rates. So they're raising rates because they're trying to get in front of inflation. They're trying to manage their inflation, but they also have a problem with confidence in their local currency. And the only way to really adjust that is to own a stable asset, which in this and still in this term is still the U.S. dollar. Because the U.S. dollar is stable, it is a a, a natural ownership. Because eighty some odd eighty eighty five percent of global trade happens in dollar terms, so it makes sense to try to to rein that in and to buy your dollars, which is why we've had the dollar remain so strong because you have this captive buyer. Now there's going to be a point in time where they say, okay, well, it doesn't make sense to buy dollars. Uh, I'm going to take these dollars that I have and I'm going to go buy T-bills. I'm going to go buy treasury bonds. Right now, the rates don't make sense, but maybe they will make sense. And you'll see the as the Fed goes away, the international community starting to buy more treasuries because this is a way to take the dollars that you've stored, invest them and get more dollars on top of it. So that's something that I think is going to remain because even with Bitcoin and and others, people still talk about it in dollar terms. And, and there's a, there's a confidence problem as well as that liquidity issue, because I, I can't, how do you manage an economy that can go, that can lose value by 10% for no reason outside of some whale decided to sell, you know, 5,000 Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a means of transaction in ether and some of these other coins sure. and not to say that Bitcoin can't be a part of it. Maybe there's, you know, one of the things that the IMF has always wanted to do and the World Bank is having a basket currency, like a basket, you know, uh, you know reserve currency. Oh, I'm sure they do. <laughs> and that's and that's some of the uh, the things that I think the dollar survives this round. And, and I think it's the next iteration, whenever that risk comes in, that you'll have a much bigger push against the dollar because you'll have uh, these coins that have now been a bit more mature. People are more confident about them. They understand them more. There's more options. And I think that is when you'll start to see this push, but <laughs> nobody's going to want to give up control of the dollar. So I, yeah. I, I think there, there will be a lot it's of reasons. Exactly. Which is why the fed, the central, you know, the, the governments are really going to step in and they'll just issue their own crypto. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree that that when that comes, that is a fist fight, and that's, um, yeah, I, it, 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 I think the 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 crypto, however far crypto was behind the dollar before twenty twenty, uh, it made up a ton of ground. It made up a ton of ground, and it still got a long way to go, but it made up a, a lot more ground than I would have thought would have happened. Um, obviously, going into twenty twenty, not knowing what was around the corner, so um, okay. that kind of caught me off guard. But that being said, I've I've said that um, I think that a couple things. One. 
um, you know, the taxation of crypto is going to be interesting how people respond to that, you know, you know, because that's obviously you start taxing it. Uh, you can tax it higher. You, you have that angle. Um, but the other thing is, is that there's so many countries that are dependent on the dollar, as you mentioned, um, that who follows an El Salvador's footpath, you know, a, a path, you know, who, mm-hmm. who's the next and it, it, do you get enough adoption? So anyways, we can talk about that in coming months, I'm sure, as there will be plenty to talk about. Mark, Absolutely. where can people find you in the meantime? Sure. So you can email me at mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. Uh, then my uh, my website is the same, or you can find me at at markfny on Twitter, or we have our uh, YouTube channel, which is Primary Vision Network. Okay. Well, good to get you back on the show, buddy. I know you're playing a little bit injured today, so it's, it's the Rosano <laughs> flu game. Um, and it's so- all right. Just just uh, just the mild fever. We, we were able to get through it. It's the with the Rosano I, flu game. Yeah, I just I just switched up Biden and Trump. It's okay. <laughs> you know, just little, little things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, good to get you on, Mark, and we'll talk to you again next. Yeah, month. Talk to you soon. Thank you.